sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to the home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please tell one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows by word of mouth. And as I've said before, specifically your mouth. Now, if you haven't listened to the last two episodes, I would strongly recommend doing so. But if you still choose to disobey my word, I'm going to offer a short and sweet summary because I'm a nice guy. The first thing we learned is that economic migration across the Mexican border has been present ever since there was a Mexico to migrate from. And the growth of agriculture and industry in America's Southwest, combined with America's love of cheap labor, created gaps in the labor market that Mexican migrants could fill. Now, at the same time, American history is one where native-born Americans have sought to protect the ethnic and cultural makeup of the country. Our first immigration policies and our policies at the southern border came from a desire to keep America predominantly Anglo-Saxon, and the Border Patrol was actually founded to keep Chinese immigrants from crossing the southern border as they were believed to bring crime and take jobs from native-born working-class workers. Fancy that. Now, as climate change and instability in Latin America have led more people to seek permanent safety in the U.S., our historical programming has kicked in, and it's had us addressing a growing humanitarian crisis in the same way we might respond to an invasion, with a continued investment put towards militarizing the border. And as it turns out, what's going on at America's southern border right now is in line with how other wealthy nations are handling a growing migrant crisis at their own borders. And in this episode, I speak with Reese Jones, professor of geography at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, whose work focuses on the changing nature of borders since the fall of the Iron Curtain and how the world's borders paradoxically have become more closed off at the same time the global economy has become more open and interconnected. And his most recent books highlight the history of U.S. immigration law and border policy and also how the Border Patrol has grown from a small group of agents to a sprawling agency with powers that extend well into the United States and well beyond that of any law enforcement agency. This is a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation that starts with the dawn of man and ends with the present day. So buckle up and get ready to take in 200,000 years of history in under an hour. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. I think when we talk about our borders here, we kind of take for granted that a country is a, a, a parcel of land with clearly defined borders, and, and that's how it's always been. And if you don't mind, before we get into the southern border and get into some of your later work, I, I really want to start there because I found that really interesting. It, it seems as if this, this idea of the nation state is really a modern concept. And could you explain its origins and why the world is cut up this way now? Yeah, that's that's definitely right. And I, I think that question gets at the overarching questions that I'm looking at in my work. I'm interested in precisely why we live in the current world that we do, which is 190-something nation states with these 
fixed territories, fixed borders, and the familiar world political map that we all know. And if you think back, though, to the past, humans have not lived in that sort of a world for very long. In the way distant past, there were no humans anywhere, right? There were no humans anywhere in the world because humans hadn't evolved yet, right? And then even once humans evolved, for the vast majority of our existence on Earth, the 200,000 years, more or less, that, that humans have been here, humans were predominantly hunter-gatherers who were moving from one place to another. And that, of course, is just evident alone in the fact that humans migrated across the entire face of the earth over that period of time. So, so the history of humanity is a history of migration, a history of movement, a history of, of using the landscape in a relatively soft way. That all starts to change with sedentary agriculture. You know, 10,000 years ago, roughly, um, some groups of humans start to settle in a place and grow plants there. And as they settle in place, they have more of a need to organize labor to use those resources. So we, we see slavery as, a, as an early form of controlling other people's movement to extract their labor, to produce the food in those sedentary agricultural places. But they also need to protect these resources that they've accumulated. Because when, when there's a large amount of grain in one place or a large amount of resources, it becomes a target for other people who are interested in, in taking that. And so the, the idea of kind of sedentary, bounded states emerges along with that process. But it takes a long time to get to the world that we live in today, where the vast majority of people live in a state and in a bounded territory. It's, it's really not until the 1600s that we see a widespread expansion of this state model of political organization. And it's not by chance that it happens at that period of time. It's very much connected to the history of cartography and specifically of the, the ability of humans to depict the world as bounded territories, right? Of course, early Greek scholars could make maps that look like our, our modern maps, but that, that idea gets lost for, for a number of centuries. And it's really not to the 1400s and 1500s that there's this new expansion of cartographic ability. So once it's possible to kind of view the world from a God's eye view or a bird's eye view or whatever way you want to phrase it, it's also possible to imagine drawing lines on those maps and bounding out territory and saying, this belongs to us and that belongs to you you stay over there, we stay over here, right, to protect those resources. That, that system really culminates with, with World War II, with the expansionary efforts of Japan and Germany, and the realization after that, that there needs to be some sort of a global system, the United Nations, to codify which territory is controlled by which people and where the official borders are around the world. So, so you really could say that our modern political system of bounded territorial states with mutual recognition of sovereignty within those is only about 80 years old. Mm. And one of the things I found fascinating about just digging into your earlier work was the idea that much of the world map was actually carved up by European powers. So a lot of the countries we see today aren't the result of people native to the region banding together and forming a nation, but rather Belgium or the Netherlands or the British coming in and carving up the land in, in that way. So when we look at the world map today, is it is it fair to say this is largely like a Western concept or a Western designed world, or is that going a little too far? I think that's right. You're right to point out that in this 
period, starting in the 1600s, when Europeans are organizing Europe in these territorial ways, drawing borders between different states in Europe. So the earliest borders in the world drawn on maps and then respected on on the earth are drawn in that period in the late 1500s, early 1600s in Europe. And they export that concept to the rest of the world. So as Europeans go out and colonize other places, typically when they encounter people there, they don't treat the people that they find as equals. Instead, they reach agreements with other European states about their colonial claims. This is maybe most most explicit in the scramble for Africa and the Berlin Mm -hmm. Conference in the late 19th century, where a series of European leaders meet in Berlin and just they, they haven't been to the vast majority of the places in Africa that they are claiming, but they just draw some lines on the map and give it to each of the different colonial powers that want to own these areas in Africa. But once they do that, they go to these places, they displace the local leaders, whatever political system was in place before, and instead use these completely arbitrary borders that they've drawn on maps in Berlin to govern these spaces. And of course, I use govern very loosely because really they're extracting resources from these places, right? They're using the labor there. They're extracting the resources to build up wealth in Europe and North America at the expense of the places that are colonized. So after World War II, when we have this period of decolonization from the late 1940s, you can think of Indian independence and the creation of Pakistan as the start of this. And it kind of culminates in the 1970s with the the last few independence movements in Africa. When these independence movements happen, it's difficult to try to recreate some sort of pre-colonial political system because that's been destroyed by the colonists, right? And what exists are road networks, governance networks within these colonial territories. So when independence happens, the only viable option and certainly the only desirable option from the perspective of the colonists is to keep those completely artificial borders, right? And Mm. so, so many of the countries throughout Africa are not based on some sort of historical peoples or historical political units, but rather these arbitrary and completely artificial colonial borders. And that's why we often see a lot of independence movements in different countries in Africa, because there are these distinct groups of people, different languages, different cultural or ethnic histories that find themselves within a single country. And so they don't necessarily think of themselves as part of that country. There hasn't been hundreds of years to kind of nationalize histories, nationalize languages as has happened in Europe. And so it it leaves these independence movements with people saying that this country doesn't represent me. Instead, it's this artificial colonial object that was imposed upon us. And that's certainly the case for borders across the Middle East. All of those were drawn by the British in South Asia, of course, as well. The partition of British India is a completely artificial relic of that colonial period. So we see that throughout these regions. And I I think it's important, too, for the listener to understand all this, because as we get into this conversation, a lot of what we're going to be talking about is the role of borders and, and I think the purpose of borders. And certainly one of the arguments you hear as we talk about the southern border with Mexico is a sovereign nation has defined borders. That's an idea that people hold very dear. And so I think that's something we're going to be exploring as we get a little further on. We're going to zoom into the border with Mexico in a moment. But before we do that, I I want to make one last stop, which is one of the things that, that you've noted in your past research is that 
the use, the number and the use of border barriers since World War II has changed. And can you talk a little bit about that history, how things looked after World War II and how things have changed in the past couple of decades? Yeah, maybe we can even go a little bit further back. But sure. I think you can see a, a, a few different eras for the ways that walls have been used because humans have used walls for thousands of years, right? People think about the great walls of China or walls around medieval cities in Europe, for example. So the idea of putting up a wall to prevent the movement of other people is, is not a new concept. But what I argue in my work, this is my first book, Border Walls, and, and my second book, Violent Borders, is that the purpose of these boundaries have changed through these different periods. And it's related to what we were just talking about, the emergence of this mutual recognition of sovereignty that exists today versus the way the world looked prior to that. So I think in that earlier era, there wasn't this notion that there were equal sovereign states, sovereign entities that respected each other in that period. Instead, in the 1300s in Europe, if someone could expand out and take areas around them, they typically did that, right? If there was a weaker power next to them, they would go take that territory. And then when they were under threat, they would shrink back, right? And so the walls of that period were ways to kind of protect resources at a very small scale because there was no system of mutual recognition of sovereignty. What we start to see from that period in the 1600s through the culmination and the creation of the United Nations is a new idea that power needs to be contained by these territories on maps and that for that system to work, each of those states need to be equal entities that respect each other. And so if you think about that period, the kind of post-UN period, the United States and Canada have a border, right? But the United States is not worried that Canada is going to invade across that border, right? Mm -hmm. That's not the purpose that border serves anymore. Instead, it's a way to mark out different economic systems, different cultural systems, different political systems. And so in that era of mutual recognition of sovereignty, we start to see some states, the ones that do colonization and take over land elsewhere, the earlier adopters of a capitalist system, produce a lot of wealth in that system. And so we see this kind of growing gap between rich and poor areas of the world. And so what I argue in my work is that over the last 40 years or so, we've entered a new purpose for borders. Well, one, one last side note on the previous era. So in that era of mutual recognition, since countries are not worried that the neighbors are going to invade across that border, it doesn't really make sense to put up a border wall. Right. You, mm -hmm. you don't need to build a massive wall just to depict a different political system. And so we don't see a lot of walls constructed in the middle of the 20th century. But these walls do start to go up starting in the late 1990s and really rapidly over the last 20 years. And so the reason that that's happened is that I argue the purpose of borders has shifted again. So as those wealth inequalities have developed around the world, we start to see people trying to move from one country to another without authorization. And so borders become the place to protect these privileges, whether it's wealth, whether it's cultural, whether it's identity-based privileges within these bounded states, and to prevent other people from accessing those. So while walls are not effective against an invading military, right? A, a plane can fly right over a border wall, a missile goes right over it, a tank can mm -hmm. just plow right through it. Walls are 
effective at slowing the movement of civilians who are trying to migrate somewhere else for better opportunities, but even more so, they're powerful symbols that demonstrate that there is this border there and that there is this inside-outside space of identity that corresponds with it. And so that's why we've seen so many of these walls going up. Mm. At the end of World War II, there were maybe five border walls anywhere in the world. As late as the year 2000, there were about 15 border walls anywhere in the world. So I started looking at this concept in the late aughts. And when the U.S. and Israel and India were building walls in their borders, I was like, why are these countries that are democracies building these walls? And so I, I wrote a book called Border Walls that came out in 2012. When that book came out, there were about 35 border walls, right? So the number had doubled in a 10-year period. But today, in 2022, there are about 70 border walls around the world. So the numbers doubled again since then. Mm. So we see this kind of widespread effort to bring into being this inside-outside space of identity. It's a powerful way for nationalist politicians to demonstrate action to kind of protect the privileges of the in-group at the expense of people on the outside as we've entered this age of mass migration. You know, it's funny. I grew up during the Cold War, and a very distinct memory to me is when the Berlin Wall fell and when the Iron Curtain fell, because that was really the border that demarcated capitalist democracies from communist autocracy, effectively. When that fell, there was this sense that the world was going to become this far more open and freer place. And it, from your work, it sounds like almost instantly after that happened, things regressed to or things regressed back to the mean or whatever you want to call it. What started this trend? Yeah, I, th I think that it's true that the world did become a lot more globalized and a lot more borderless in those decades after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the kind of the end of the Cold War, but unevenly. That's the, that's the key thing, right? So for capital, for corporations, the world is very connected. It's really easy for a corporation to have its headquarters in New York City, but then to have factories in Mexico, in the Philippines, in Cambodia, in India, in Pakistan, to be this kind of globalized corporation. It's also increasingly easy for wealthy people to travel around the world. If you have a European, a Japanese, an American passport, if you have a lot of money and you have any passport, it's relatively easy to move between different parts of the world, as easy perhaps as it has ever been. So the world is indeed globalized and borderless for some. But what we've seen, and I think what was unexpected when the Berlin Wall came down, was that didn't produce globalization for everyone, right? Instead, mm -hmm. we've seen the world become much more bordered for the poor. So for the laborers who are working in those corporations, factories, they are not being allowed to move freely, right? Instead, we see these walls going up. We see a lot of immigration restrictions. We see a lot of nationalist language about the fear of this other, which I argue a part of that story is to continue to, to protect these privileges that have been produced through this unequal system and to contain these laborers to other places in order to be able to continue to access their labor at very low wages while the profits continue to flow to the United States and Europe. Mm. It's, it's interesting because as you're saying this, I'm, I'm thinking back to the, the conversation I, I told you about before we hit record, the conversation I had with Karina, who runs a, a women's shelter in, in Juarez, and she was born and raised in El Paso, 
and she has family on both sides of the border. And one of the things she told me about her childhood is that crossing the border was kind of a joke. Like it was, it was common and it was known that people would cross the border on tourist visas and then work in the field. And, but they always went back. And now, of course, with the hardening of the border, that doesn't happen anymore. And what she noticed is that it wasn't just the reasons people were crossing that changed, but the people as well. You, you weren't just talking about people from native Mexicans crossing from Mexico into the United States to work. It was now people coming from further south. Can you talk a little bit about what's driving that mass migration or maybe how that looks at a macro level rather than the anecdotal example I gave? Yeah. I think first, just like we were talking about with the fact that borders have not always existed, the idea of bounded territories, I think a lot of people are often surprised to hear that the United States has not always had immigration rules. People just assume that that countries have always had rules about who could enter their territory. But that's not the case for the United States. The United States did not have a federal immigration law until 1875. So for roughly the first 100 years that the country exists, there were no rules at all about who could enter the territory of the United States. There were rules about who could become a citizen. Citizenship was very much restricted to, to free white people, which is what the, the original naturalization law said. But there were no immigration rules, right? In the 1870s, it's, of course, Chinese immigration that becomes the fear of the other and there are rules put in place for that. By the 1920s, there are... Uh, eugenics-based notions of, of white Northern European superiority that, that culminates with the 1924 Immigration Act, which restricts immigration from all of Asia and puts quotas on, on Europe to, to force Southern and Eastern Europeans into very small numbers and try to encourage more Northern European immigration. So it's not until 1924 that the United States has a border patrol. For example, the border patrol was created two days after that racist national origin law was put in place. But even then, migration from Mexico wasn't included in that. Immigration from Mexico wasn't restricted until the 1965 Immigration Act. So until 1965, people from Mexico were free to enter the United States. There were no quotas on that immigration. They couldn't work, right? They had to have permission to do work in the United States. And so, of course, a lot of people were coming to the U.S. and working without the proper documentation. But there were no rules about entry from Mexico until the 1960s. The law went into place in 1965, and it didn't actually get enacted until 1968. So a, a lot of what we think of today as illegal immigration is really an invention of that post-1960s era and something that just didn't exist prior to that. So it, it's something that, that we have created. It's a problem that we've brought into being rather than something that, that has always existed in the country. Why, why did they implement that law in the 60s? Yeah, so the 1965 revision to the Immigration Act, it was part of the, the civil rights era revisions to, to U.S. laws. The, in 1964, the Civil Rights Act had said that the U.S. government can't discriminate based on race, national origin, religion, but that 1920s law specifically discriminated based on national origin in terms of immigrating to the United States. And so they, they had to revise it because of that. But when they did revise it, they wanted to make sure in the speeches in the, in the Senate 
make clear, even, even Teddy Kennedy gave a speech where he talked about how this new law wouldn't flood the cities with immigrants. It won't change the racial character of the country. And so part of the compromises that were made to get rid of those racial national origins was to put in place new restrictions on Mexican immigration at that period of time. It was a way to kind of bring on board votes in the in the coalitions that that weren't so sure about what the impacts of getting rid of the national origin quotas would be. Got it. Got it. Also, I don't know if you can hear my dog, but he makes a cameo on just about every episode and he's barking <laughs> in the background. So I, Yeah, I'm not sure if you can hear here as well. There's one of my neighbor's dogs is barking quite a bit, but maybe perfect. it's just quiet enough that you can't. <laughs> oh, can't perfect. Perfect. Yeah. We 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 have kids on the show. We have dogs every now and then there's a cat, Reese. It's a it's a virtual circus yep. over here. It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like part of the reason we made those changes was over racial anxiety with the progress of the civil rights movement. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it, it was a compromise made to bring on board people who were concerned about what the implications might be for the country if a more open immigration system was created. So the 1965 law was meant to be restrictive and to maintain kind of the, the flows that had been coming before, but it doesn't end up doing that. I mean, there, there's much more diverse immigration because of the way they set up family reunification visas. In the 1960s, the U.S. was over 90% white, and so they thought if they had mostly family reunification visas, then 90% of the people applying for those would, sure. would be white. But of course, most of the white people in the U.S. at that time, their ancestors had migrated decades or centuries before, and they didn't have any relatives back in their home countries who might want to, to migrate to the U.S. with this visa, but newer immigrants did. And so what we've seen is because of that family reu reunification visa, the majority of the people coming on that are from much more diverse places than previously. And so it's created a, a different sort of immigration stream, even though that wasn't necessarily what was originally intended. Yeah, um, yeah I, I have another book that just came out a couple months ago called Nobody is Protected, which looks at the Border Patrol, and it really looks at this period in the 1970s quite heavily, because after this change to the restriction on Mexican immigration, we see just a huge increase in the number of apprehensions by the Border Patrol. And there's this period in the 1970s where there are these fascinating Supreme Court cases about what the Border Patrol can do inside the United States. And I think a lot of people are surprised to learn how deep inside the United States the Border Patrol can actually operate. Most people think of the Border Patrol, well, it's, it's border, right? It's, it's at the border. But they can operate within 100 miles of borders and coastlines, which is a vast area that includes almost two-thirds of the U.S. population, many of the largest cities. You know, pe when people think of the border, they think of places like, like San Diego or, or El Paso. But in that definition, Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago, Seattle, all of those cities are in the border zone or in this area where the Border Patrol has these special rules where they can make stops and do searches in ways that regular police officers can't. And so in that book, I talk about what the implications of that are, this kind of creep of the Border Patrol inside the United States and the way that affects American citizens and immigrants alike. Do you know... I want to get into that. And before we do, I want to cite something I learned from you, which is the entire state of Michigan counts as a border region. The entire state of Michigan. So everybody visualize the state of Michigan. 
that is a border state, correct? Yeah, that's right. Because somewhat bizarrely, and it's and it's contested, but the Border Patrol counts Lake Michigan, even though it's completely bounded by U.S. states, as an international waterway because there's ships coming, of course, through the St. Lawrence Seaway into Lake Michigan. And so because of that, they count the edges of Lake Michigan as the border. So that brings large sections of Wisconsin, for example, Chicago, and, and all of the state of Michigan into the border zone. My, my entire state of Hawaii here is border zone because there's nowhere in the state that's more than 100 miles from a, from a border. Florida, the entire state of Florida is in the border zone. Um, Maine, um, Massachusetts, uh, the, the, I think. Massachusetts, yeah. um, New Jersey, Delaware, Rhode Island, all of those are completely in the border zone. And the, the reason that it's important, because when the Supreme Court considered these rules and created all these exceptions to the Fourth Amendment for the Border Patrol, at that time, the Border Patrol was about a thousand Border Patrol agents. It was a relatively small force, and they were mostly at the U.S.-Mexico border at that time. Today, though, they're almost 20,000 Border Patrol agents. And so they're doing this stuff. They're setting up internal checkpoints. They're stopping vehicles in places where they never were before. Um, about a, a third of the Border Patrol's inter interior checkpoints are at the northern border. And so when I say interior checkpoints, I'm not talking about on the borderline. I'm talking about on American highways inside the United States, 25 to 100 miles from the border. These are in New Hampshire, New York, and Maine that they've been running these checkpoints over the last five years. And what the Border Patrol's own data shows, though, is that they don't catch many immigrants at these checkpoints. Instead, what they're predominantly finding are American citizens, and they're finding American citizens with, with drugs. 91% of the people cited for drug violations at interior checkpoints are U.S. citizens, and 50% of those are cited for having less than an ounce of marijuana. So it's a really unintended consequence of these decisions that the Supreme Court made in the 1970s about what the Border Patrol could do and represents this kind of creep that I identify in the book into doing interior policing in the United States that has very little to do with the original mission of the Border Patrol. What are some examples that might surprise a listener? Yeah, so, well, I think a lot of us watched the protest, participated in protests in the summer of 2020 about police violence in the United States. And during those protests, the Trump administration used Border Patrol agents, repurposed them to defend federal buildings in the United States during those protests. And so a number of the instances where you've seen, for example, in Portland, Oregon, which is a place people don't think of as being near the border, you may recall these incidences where these unmarked vans pulled up in the middle of the night and grabbed people off the street and pulled them into the van and drove off with them. These were Border Patrol agents that were doing that as part of this other mission that the, the Trump administration had for them. Um, another example is during the initial protests in Minneapolis after George Floyd's killing, the Border Patrol sent a drone. They have about 10 drones that they use to patrol at the border. But the regulation of the Border Patrol's air and marine operations say there's no limit to where they can patrol inside the United States. So they can send them anywhere in the U.S. And they lent one of their drones to Minneapolis during those protests. So there was a Customs and Border Protection Predator drone flying over Minneapolis observing the protests after George Floyd's death. So, so there are lots of examples of the Border Patrol doing these things in the interior of the United States 
that are far beyond what their mission should be. And how are the rules different for the Border Patrol than a local police force? The biggest difference for the Border Patrol is in that 100-mile zone, they can stop vehicles with reasonable suspicion rather than probable cause, right? So if a police officer wants to pull you over and ask you questions, they need to have probable cause that some sort of a violation or crime has been committed. Border Patrol agents only need reasonable suspicion. And the Border Patrol has said that that means they need to be able to articulate at least two facts for why they stopped a vehicle in the interior of the United States. And that the ruling in 1975 that lays these out, it's United States versus Brignone Ponce, and, and I talk about this in detail in my book, Nobody is Protected. It's, it's a wide range of things that they say they can use. And most significantly, their suspicion doesn't have to be based on the vehicle itself. Instead, it can be characteristics of the area. So it can be the Border Patrol agent has known that smugglers operate on this road, and that can be one of the facts to stop someone. Even more troubling is that the Supreme Court said that the Border Patrol can use race as one of the facts. So the appearance of the driver, the ruling actually mentions haircuts, modes of dress that, that are, the, the ruling says Mexican, but the Border Patrol has expanded that to be foreign modes of dress or haircuts can be used as one of the factors to make a stop. So if you're driving on a border road and you look Mexican, that's sufficient evidence for the Border Patrol to be able to pull you over and interrogate you in that place. So mm. it's a really troubling amount of power that they have. And it's something that they use quite explicitly. There have been a number of studies about the, the number of people stopped by the Border Patrol and the demographics of that. For example, at, at one checkpoint in Arizona, a group monitored it 24 hours a day at this checkpoint about 20 miles north of the border. And at that checkpoint, people of color were 26 times as likely to be asked for identification compared to white people and 20 times as likely to be diverted to a secondary inspection where they had a much more detailed interrogation than white drivers were driving through that checkpoint. Moreover, during that one-month period where this group observed this checkpoint in Arizona, the Border Patrol actually did not make a single immigration detention in that entire month. So this huge imposition on drivers and this targeting of American or permanent residents who had the right documentation to be in the United States produced no people without the proper documents. So I've argued, and, and a lot of other people who are critical of these practices have argued that this authority that the Border Patrol has has resulted in, in a real imposition on American citizens and a dangerous expansion of their power into the daily lives of people in, in this border zone. And again, it's a vast border zone. The entire state of Michigan, as you talked about, yep. two-thirds of the U.S. population lives in this area where the Border Patrol can do this. So they may not be doing it in your neighborhood now, but if we look at this expansion of this agency over the last 50 years and their expansion into places where they didn't used to do it in the past, if we think about what they're going to do in the future, 50 years from now, it's, it's really frightening where this will be and, and what they will be doing. And I want to get into that. And there's there's one thing I want to say before we get there, which is if, if you're a listener and, and you're on the right, there was a great question that was asked in an earlier episode. This is one we did on healthcare, And the question was, would you trust a single payer healthcare system if it were administered by the Trump administration? The gist of it being that, of course, many on the left want single payer health care. And does it look as ideal when it's under somebody you don't like in office? 
And so again, if you're listening and you're on the right, the question I'm going to ask you is, as we start to discuss the powers of the Border Patrol, as we've discussed the ability of the Border Patrol to exert power (laughs) within Minneapolis, which many people would argue is very, very within our borders, would you be comfortable with a powerful national police force administered under Biden right now or administered under a President Sanders or a President Warren? So as you're listening, I want you to really kind of frame it in that context. So kind of building on that then, um, you know, you've talked about their range. How do things look in terms of like the power they can exert, like the power to detain people without cause and, and so on? Yeah, exactly. So the, the ability to stop people without a warrant is the key part of it, right? So when they wrote the Border Patrol's authorization in 1924, when it was first established, as I document in my book, Nobody is Protected, they meant for them to only be at the borderline. But they did give them the, the ability to stop people without a warrant. But what's happened is they've continued to move further and further inside the United States, but they've kept that ability to stop people without a warrant in in what they're doing. So that's what's so troubling. And I think for your listeners on both sides of of the the divide, I think the key thing to keep in mind is they are targeting American citizens, right? I mean, I I already mentioned that 91% of the people cited for drug violations are American citizens, right? This is something that is not about immigration anymore, right? It's about policing inside the United States and targeting people far from the border itself. So if if the listener thinks that the main thing that the Border Patrol should be doing is stopping immigration, then they should support moving the Border Patrol back to the border itself. That's where they were originally intended to be. And there, there's really no need for them to be able to operate so deep inside the United States. The Border Patrol's own data shows that almost 60% of their apprehensions happen within one mile of the border itself. So a much more reasonable situation might be to say the Border Patrol can only operate within five miles of the border Mm. um, and maybe take away the coastline idea, right? So that they're much more focused on the border itself rather than these operations deep inside the United States. Mm. Now, if we get into the militarization of the Border Patrol as well. Where do we see that and what does that look like? So that's the other big change that's happened at the Border Patrol. So for most of the Border Patrol's existence, it was a relatively small agency, you know, 1,500 agents in 1975, a little over 3,000 agents in 1990. And it's a bipartisan expansion of the Border Patrol. The first big expansion is in 1994 during the Clinton administration. And by 2000, there are almost 8,000 Border Patrol agents. But it's really after September 11th. And with the notion that the border is part of the security apparatus, with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, the Border Patrol is moved into that agency. Um, And the Border Patrol immediately presents themselves as a front line against terrorist infiltration. If you look at their documents online, For example, the Border Patrol has an official ethos. Their official ethos doesn't mention immigration at all, right? Instead, it's language about terrorism and protecting and security rather than law enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this transition that happens in that post-September 11th era where they think of themselves as a military force, as a anti-terror force rather than a law enforcement agency. And using that sort of language, they tap into that huge flow of money after September 11th. 
to double in size again, right? They're in, in 2012, there were over 21,000 Border Patrol agents. It's in the 19,000s now, but also to buy all of this military gear. I mentioned the drones already. So they buy a number of Predator drones. They buy much more sophisticated helicopters. If you encounter Border Patrol agents today, they look more militarized than they would have in the past. They have the expensive weapons. They have the night vision goggles. They have all of this military gear now so that they've become a militarized force. And that's profitable, of course, for these corporations that make military gear, right? They've kind of created... You know, we'd hear before about a military industrial complex. I think you can think of a border security industrial complex today where the idea that the border is insecure is used to justify ever more spending for border security gear. And it's a thing that's never, never going to completely happen, right? To the notion that the border can be completely secured is, is a false one, right? It's mm. the, the border with Mexico is almost 2,000 miles long. It's through extremely rugged terrain. It would take just an enormous force of people posted at the border every five to 10 feet to, to bring anything close to a complete securing of that border. But even in that case, you know, there are tunnels under the border. The Border Patrol has found 250 tunnels in the last 20 years under that border. And a lot of the people who cross the border come through checkpoints with proper documents, or increasingly we're seeing people arriving by boat. So the notion of completely securing the border is, is a false one, but never it's, nevertheless, it's used to justify this continued expansion of spending and the ever more militarization of this force at the border. What's the reality at the border then? Because I think what you see are, are, are just, just crowds of people making their way to the northern border. And I think what's inferred out of that is that we have a lot of crime, we have a lot of drugs, and there's this whole group of people looking to do evil in the United States. What's the reality in terms of why people are coming? And what's the reality in terms of the numbers relative to, let's say, the, you know, the past 30 years, past 40 years, what have you? There definitely have been some changes in the last few years. And the, the big change that we've seen is people coming to apply for asylum at the border. So historically, the majority of people crossing the border over the last 30 or 40 years were typically single Mexican men who were coming into the U.S. to work for a period of time and had an intention to return back to Mexico after a season or a couple of years working in the United States. So those people did try to cross clandestinely and they would avoid the border patrol in the border areas. What we see today, though, is something very different. We see families fleeing violence in the Caribbean or in Central America or increasingly South America as well, who are making their way to the border. But once they cross the border, they make no effort to avoid the border patrol. They're not trying to sneak clandestinely into the United States. Instead, they want to apply for asylum. Um, and the laws of the United States are completely clear that they have the right to do that. So once they step foot in the United States, they can apply for asylum, and the United States is obligated to hear that asylum request. So what we're seeing right now really is a breaking down of the previous refugee system. So the idea was after the creation of the Refugee Convention, which became kind of ratified at a global level in the late 1960s, and the U.S. passed its Refugee Act in 1980, the idea was when there was a conflict or a problem in a particular country, 
The people who fled should go to a refugee camp. They should be managed by the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. And then if the situation doesn't improve in their home country, they should be resettled to a third country, either the United States or Europe. That system, though, starts to break down because people end up being stuck in these camps for decades because they're not enough resettlement spots compared to the number of people who need protection as refugees. So what we start to see around 2010, and this is really evident in Europe during the Syrian war, for example, is people fleeing that war decide they're not going to stop at these refugee camps, right? Because they, they've seen that it can be decades that they would be living in these terrible conditions in these refugee camps. So instead, they, they opt to go straight to the country where they want to apply for asylum, whether that's Germany or Sweden inside the European Union. And at the U.S.-Mexico border, we see this same phenomenon start to happen with people fleeing violence in Central America or South America, no longer wanting to stop at a refugee camp or at a third country, and instead heading straight to the United States to apply for asylum. So what we what the result of that is, is that we have this militarized anti-terror force at the border who imagine everyone they're encountering could be a terrorist trying to carry out an attack in the United States. But what they're actually seeing are families with kids in desperate situations looking for protection, right? Mm. So we, we need a humanitarian force at the border to process these valid applications for asylum. But instead, we meet them with these people trained to be warriors, right? And so it's created this mismatch at the border between what the Border Patrol is set up to do and what they're actually encountering with people crossing the border. Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of rephrase everything that we just talked about, because I think it's important that people get this. So I see a, a couple of things going on after hearing you talk. And the the first is that we have this nationalized police force that's been granted greater power than any domestic police force. They have a military budget. And with that's been created a massive financial interest in keeping the threat alive. And I think what I'd like people to take home is that if that threat doesn't exist at the southern border, maybe politics change or whatnot, they're going to find an enemy. Like that's that, that's that's kind of how it works. And with that amount of power, that enemy could be anybody. Part two of that, and this is something that we we really delved into in the episode I did with Karina, is that we're trying to meet a humanitarian problem with a military solution. As a result, you know what we have, and again, in, from from in my estimation, is a policy at the border that really doesn't, I think, align with American values of being a country that greets those in need and that helps those in need. And so I guess as you look at this, are there models we can use to make our border policy more humanitarian or to address that humanitarian issue? Do we have to create a new model? And if so, what does that look like? I think we do have to create a new model because the old model of refugee resettlement and asylum is collapsing, right? It's not working as it was meant to, and it's not functional anymore. And I think the other reality we need to face is that although we're seeing the most people arriving at the border applying for asylum that we've ever seen in the, the history of the border, in terms of total arrivals at the border, we're somewhere similar to what it was maybe 20 years ago. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think you can say that there are a record number of arrivals at the border. The Border Patrol sometimes reports 
a record number of encounters that they have, mm -hmm. but often encounters mean that they've seen someone maybe five or six times at the border. So you can't count that as total arrivals at the border. But, but I think that we can say that the number of people applying for asylum is at the highest level ever. But I think we can also say if we project forward for the next 30 or 40 years, those numbers are only going to increase, right? Because climate change is happening, right? It's going to disrupt a lot of places around the world. We're going to see different rainfall patterns. We're going to see different heat patterns. We're going to see crop failures. We're going to see conflicts in the aftermath of that. The UN has predicted maybe 50 million people will be displaced by climate change in the coming decades. And so that means a lot more people arriving at the borders of the United States and Europe in those decades to come. So I think we have a moment right now to rethink that, to, to say, this is going to happen. These people are going to come to this border and look for protection. And so it's time now to figure out what a fair and equitable and just system looks like to manage that. As you mentioned, what we're doing now is meeting it with a military response, right? We're, we're meeting it with putting up walls, with creating violence, with making it ever more difficult for people to make that trip which results in a lot of deaths of people who are simply looking for protection for themselves and their families. A more humane system would look at look for ways to integrate those people into different countries around the world, to have a system where people are resettled to a safe third country and a system that invests money instead of in military spending in humanitarian assistance that creates ways to stabilize people's lives in different parts of the world. Some of those people would settle in the United States and the United States needs more people, right? We have an employment problem mm -hmm. and research on, on the arrival of immigrants has shown quite clearly that more immigrants benefit the US economy as a whole. So the US should absolutely take in more people than it has been over the last few years. But we need to really think of this as a global issue and come up with a global solution to it that is not just done on a country by country basis, but rather creates a global framework for managing the movement of people. At, at the start of this conversation, we talked about the history of humanity as a history of migration. And that's not going to stop going forward, even though we want to imagine the world today as these bounded nation states. So I think instead, we need to come up with a framework that accepts that humans move around and they're gonna to continue to do that. And we need to create a humane and safe way for them to do so. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. You can also get additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the day by signing up for YDHTY's email newsletter in the link in the show notes or by visiting ydhty.com news. I have also included links to some of Reese's recent works in the show notes, so be sure to check them out as well. Now, we covered a ton in this episode, as I promised, so I'm going to break it down in two simple takeaways. The first is that the historical programming we inherited from past generations vis-a-vis -vis border policy has created a militarized civilian police force with greater powers that extend further in the country than I realized. And I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm not comfortable with any law enforcement agency being able to stop people without probable cause just because they're in the state of Michigan. Now, there's also the issue of budget. 
Customs and Border Patrol currently has a budget two times the size of the FBI, and bureaucracies will generally use whatever political clout they have to increase funding and power. And even if you are concerned with people crossing the border illegally, and even if you have a high level of trust in the Border Patrol, it's not hard to imagine the wrong person manufacturing a crisis at the border in the interest of expanding the agency's reach. And given their powers in the United States, that could be substantial. Now, the second takeaway, that first takeaway was really one takeaway in two parts, is that this conversation got me questioning the role of the nation state and the role of borders altogether. We have a world where wealthy people can move wherever they want and their money can move wherever they want meaning the laws of the land really only apply to those who can't afford to leave it. And as Reese mentioned, migration is as old as humanity itself, and there's never been an instance where people have opted to starve when another option was available simply by walking. And I think we need to ask ourselves, what happens if we continue to focus on containment rather than addressing the root causes of desperation? What happens overseas, and more importantly, who do we become in the process? This gets back to the episode with Chris Brown and the conversation around national identity. As always, I would love your comments. Feel free to email me at heydan, that's H-E-Y-D-A-N at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com or visit the website, poke around, you'll find a form, I make it easy, and let me know what you think. As always, Music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement is the Admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>